Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. We share the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and then use their strengths to create solutions. On today's episode, you'll hear from Joanne Lee Molinaro, known around the world as the Korean vegan. We'll be right back after this. I'm here with my sister, Debbie Shore, uh, who's in Washington, D.C., and I'm in Boston. And our guest today is Joanne Lee Molinaro, who, uh, if you know TikTok, and I think, Joanne, you're our first TikTok superstar on this podcast. We've had a lot of amazing people. I was going to say that. I don't think we've had anybody from TikTok. You're our first. That's right. Um, which is great. And, and Joanne, Joanne Lee Molinaro, I got to introduce you properly. Uh, I know you've often been introduced, and this is going to change soon, as an American ter- attorney and vegan author and blogger. But now you're a vegan author and TikToker and blogger and not so much an American attorney. <laughs> um, so that's a big change. Um, we'll talk about all of that. Um, I know that you started your food blog in 2016. You've got more than 4 million fans spread across your various uh, social media platforms. Your TikToks are really amazing. I've got a uh, 16 and a half year old son who pretty much lives on TikTok. So uh, I'm familiar with it and with you. And we're thrilled to have you. Welcome, Joanne. Well, I'm thrilled to be here and equally thrilled to be your first major TikToker on the podcast. <laughs> Joanne, I went to law school at GW Law in Washington, D.C., never practiced a single day. So I've got you beat in that sense, but I don't have four million. <laughs> I don't have four million social media followers. So I don't Not have yet. <laughs> but, so let's go back to where all this started. This is something Debbie and I love to get into in terms of your childhood, the influence of your family, where the... Um, the just kind of the passion for food uh, came from originally. Uh, take, take us way back to little Joanne. Yeah. So little Joanne, okay, I've always loved eating food, and so did little Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love eating food. Um, I can't remember a time when I didn't love food. My brother loves food. We grew up loving food. But my parents and my family – Uh, You know, I lived with both of my grandmothers growing up. So from the age of zero to three, I lived with my maternal grandmother. And then from the age of three to 13, I lived with my paternal grandmother. And that's very typical in a Korean household, even uh, maybe even particularly so in the United States when your brother is the only uh, son of the oldest son. So my father was the oldest son in his family. And when my brother was born, his grandmother, my paternal grandmother came to live with us. It's very typical. And because of that, we had only Korean food at home. We didn't get to eat American food. We did very, very rarely. And it was always sort of an interesting interpretation of American food that we got to eat at home. And uh, we, you know, sometimes we would go to like a pizza hut or a ponderosa for like birthdays and special occasions. But otherwise, it was very traditional Korean fare at home. And that was always very frustrating to me and my brother because that wasn't what the kids at school were eating. Uh, that wasn't what the kids on TV were eating. And we felt like we were missing out on like this amazing gastronomic experience that everyone else is having that we were not. Um, so it wasn't until I got to college that I realized, you know, what a blessing 
um, I had during those earlier years where I got to eat home-cooked Korean food virtually every single day. I saw one of the uh, videos you talked about, I forget the name of the school, I think it was Highland Elementary, the, the cafeteria, and how what a hard place that was for you um, to go to. Why, why was that so hard? It was hard for a lot of different reasons, but in the beginning it was hard because I had the wrong food, <laughs> you know, like every, I mean, you know, like growing up, there are some children who by virtue of their personality or the way their parents sort of, you know, raise them, they are strong enough even at the ages of eight, nine, 10 to say, I don't care if I'm different. I'm proud of my difference. You know, there are children like that. I was not one of those. I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be like everyone else, you know, and I was so different already um, because I didn't look the same. And I was different because I didn't speak the same language. And then I was different because I didn't have the right food. I didn't even have the right lunchbox, you know. So all of these things were just incredibly distressing to me. And then, you know, finally, when my when my grandmother, you know, got on the program and started sending me to school with, you know, ham sandwiches and juice boxes and potato chips. The irony of it was, even though it looked the same as everyone else's, I hated the food. It was so terrible. I was like, I don't like what my lunch is anymore. Did, did that help you just kind of accept, you know, all the wonderful food you did have and just start, you know, packing that or no? Not really. <laughs> it just, I was just that bratty kid who was like, no, I want, now I don't want you to pack my food. I want you to give me money so that I could buy pizza and French fries like all the other kids are. It just, it was a lot like that really up until college. Joanna, I, I had a question about, um, you know, some of your videos, you, you are so vulnerable and so honest and so open and you talk about so many painful experiences, really. And I was wondering if, you know, sometimes those are about a teachable moment for your listeners or is it cathartic for you? Some of them are really some very heavy material um, or is it just a mixture of both? I think that for the most part, I would say my primary objective is to create what you call teachable moments or moments where people can reflect a little bit, take some time to think about something. I don't share my story simply to share my stories. That is not the intent. I And some of them, as you note, are uncomfortable for me to share. But I do it because I feel like there is a kernel of truth in these stories that more people need to hear. And so it's always that. Now, can they also be cathartic? Most of the time they are. In a couple of instances, they were too uncomfortable to be cathartic, if that makes sense. And so, um, and, and, you know, and in those instances, looking back, I always have to wonder, you know, it's important what you do and it's important to share these stories for the lessons in them, but you also need to remember that it's important to consider whether you're ready to share some of these things. And if you're not, then you should not. Yeah. And, you know, one of them that I think really relates to so many people, broad appeal, is where you talk about what health means to you. You know, it used to mean like the numbers on the scale and then and then you had, you know, a real change of, of perspective on that. And I thought that was super interesting and wondered if you could just speak to that a little bit, because I think that's something that so many people struggle with. Uh, what does good health really mean to, to you and to them? 
Well, I don't blame people for struggling with it. They're being told 70 bazillion different definitions of health every second of the day. It's very confusing. And I'm one of those consumers. I'm sitting here watching TV with bajillion pharmaceutical commercials and, you know, lose weight by doing this and bikini ads. I mean, like we're bombarded with different definitions of health. And then as a content creator, uh, as a vegan content creator, people have simply projected their own views of health onto me and what they expect of me. And that's very frustrating sometimes, you know? And so I posted that because, again, I felt like there are some people who need to maybe think a little bit about what does it actually mean? What does health mean? I had to go through that journey myself. It was painful. It was not fun. And it continues to be uh, an evolution. It's not something like where I'm like, okay, I'm here. (laughs) You know, I'm done with this journey. (laughs) I'm not, you know. Um, But, you know, part one, I think that health always needs to incorporate mental health. If you don't incorporate mental health and your understanding of what health what of what health is to you, then you're missing a very big part of the picture, and you could end up injuring yourself uh, from a mental health perspective. And number two, for my you know content, you know my way of communicating with people has always been to disarm them through vulnerability. I'm worried that some people might say, I don't agree with this, or I, you know, I don't want to hear this, or I don't, you know, who are you to tell me this? And I'm like, I'm not telling you anything other than what I experienced. You cannot argue with me about my experience because I'm the 100% person expert on my experience. You know, my truth is my truth. Yeah, I feel like that comes across really clearly. You know, it's not preachy. It's really about your own expression. If you take something from that, then that's you. And that's more powerful, too, as opposed to me just telling you this is what you should do. The great uh, film director uh, and writer, Aliyah Kazan, once said, uh, the more personal something is, the more universal it is. You clearly have people responding to that. Yes. And I think that what, you know, Mr. Kazan is saying is really a lesson in humility, right? Like we think that our pains and our struggles, our joys and our experiences, we're the only ones in the whole wide world who experiences this and no one can understand and no one can relate. I'm all alone. And, and, um, you know, there, you know, there's a certain kind of like, not arrogance, but like, you know, self-imposed isolation to that way of thinking. And the actuality is that once you reveal the nature of your struggle, almost all the time, there's going to be quite a few people who say, I know exactly what you're talking about. And the beautiful part about it is that once you do make that revelation, you realize you don't have to be alone. Was 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 there a, a moment for you when... Uh, early on when it all kind of clicked and and you felt like, okay, there's a, there's some ingredients to this that I want to make sure I don't lose. I want to honor them. They're precious. People relate to them. And it, and it all kind of came together was there's just like a light bulb moment. No, there's no light bulb moment for me. I I think other people (laughs) have them, but it, it, it wasn't like that. And I, 
I don't know that it ever will be like that. And I don't think it's because of circumstances. I just think that's my personality. I'm always looking to figure out ways to make things better, to refine my process, to make my message clearer. And so it's never like, oh, yeah, I've found the magic sauce. Here you go. It's always like, wow, this tastes really good, but. And so that's always been the way with the Korean vegan. It started out, as, you know, in 2016 as like your very typical food blog. Here's my vegan version of this. Here's my recipe. There you go. Thank you very much, you know. And then in 2017, I started incorporating the stories of my parents, you know. And then in 2020, I started a TikTok and that radically changed the Korean vegan. And so it's it's a constantly evolving process. And what I like to do is take the things that I know are important, that work, that are effective, and then layer on you know, more complexity, uh, more nuance, uh, more inclusion, um, more compelling messaging so that it's reaching an even wider audience in a more powerful way. And in terms of what you're doing now with, uh, with the book, with TikTok, what's, what's the most fun part? What's the hardest part? Mm. Oh, let's see. There are so many different things. I think that the most fun part probably is the writing. I am, you know, every Monday, uh, like today, I write my newsletter, which goes out every Tuesday. And my newsletter is not like a lot of other newsletters. We're like, here's the recipe. Enjoy. Um, it actually, it almost never includes a recipe. It's more just like my thoughts on the week, you know, things that are happening, um, you know, updates from my life and things like that. And it's really a time where I can just write a letter uh, to my community. And that brings me a great deal of joy because I love writing. I mean, that's something that I've loved to do since I was very, very young. I think probably the other thing that I really enjoy doing is just cooking. I love cooking. I mean, it, it, I like eating and I like eating my food the best. So as a result of that, I like cooking. So it's all, it all works together. It sounds a lot like my sister. I know. Well, I, I love to cook too. Uh, and I, I really like my own food as well. But what I realized about cooking, I don't know if you feel this way. I don't know how often you, you know, are cooking for groups or friends, but I love to cook and I love to think about everything from the menu to the place setting to the shopping, the whole thing. Love the whole process, but I only want to do it once like a week. I could never do it two nights in a row. It's just so much work. And it's, you know, it just takes so much. I mean, I'm a high energy person, but it takes such a full, you know, engagement. I feel like to do a dinner party, whether I'm doing it for like someone I don't even know very well or my best friend, I put the same amount of effort in, you know, I don't know if you feel that way. I totally know what you mean. I think dinner parties, like I told my agent, I was like, one day I would like to write a book on just dinner parties because dinner parties are a totally different universe from social media, recipe development. It's it's completely different. Recipe development can be a part of it, but it doesn't even necessarily have to be about recipe development. It's really more about event planning and like putting all the pieces together and creating a product that is entirely different that happens to incorporate food and cooking food. So I, I definitely hear you even once a week. That's a lot. You, you know what I, I think about when I watch your videos? This is so basic. So I'm, I'm assuming it's like the intentional approach that you that you're taking the style. So, you know, you're talking about 
things that are unrelated to the food, you know, that you're making, you're telling a story and you're cooking. And I, I just love that, you know, I can, I'm doing two things at once. I'm looking at this incredible food and I'm listening to your story. And then it hit me that that's really what most people are doing when they're in the kitchen cooking. They're cooking. If there's someone in the room, right? Someone comes over and I'm in the kitchen cooking and they're, we're, we're talking about something unrelated to the guacamole I'm preparing or whatever it is I'm making, right? That's the idea. That is the exact idea. Deb, if only you had figured this out before <laughs> Joanne did. <laughs> Our lives would be completely different it's right now. Time. I think Joanne understands what I'm saying, okay? I think she does. I think she does. I totally do. As somebody who has thrown uh, several dinner parties now, you know that like 30 to 45 minutes before the first, you know, uh, plated, you know, dish hits the table, your guests are kind of wandering into the kitchen, grazing on, you know, chips or whatever with a glass of wine. And you, you're not sitting there being like, and then what I'm doing is I'm going to mince the garlic and then I'm going to toast the garlic and then I'm going to add the pot. You don't do that. You talk about... What did I do today? Oh, my mom said the funniest thing, or I saw the craziest TikTok, or, you know, that's what you're doing. Uh, Joanne, how do the various members of your family, either immediate or extended, how, how, how are they reacting to all this and receiving it? I think that at the end of the day, they're like, Joanne is Joanne, you know? And, and what do I mean by that? Like, I don't feel like anything different has really happened other than the fact that I withdrew from partnership. That was a big pill to swallow for my parents. That was, that was hard for them. Otherwise, of course, they're very proud of me, but they were also very proud of me as a lawyer. And I think that, you know, one thing that's different, I suppose, for my parents is that I feel like especially my dad, um, I think the the hardest thing about his life has always been this sort of feeling that nobody sees him and nobody listens to him and that his story isn't important enough. And I certainly contributed to that because I was a total brat, as I mentioned, and I didn't think his imp his story was important enough to listen to. I often ignored him and I was terrible. But I think that that's something that he's felt his whole life, including when he was a child. And that is changing very dramatically for my dad in that now his daughter is listening to him. And now he also has millions, tens and tens of millions of people who are listening to him. And that has been very special to see. We haven't really talked about the immigrant experience and all that you convey about that we're almost kind of taking for granted that the, and it is such a big part of your uh, I feel like of your your message and what people understand about you but say do you feel a responsibility now uh, on on kind of representing the immigrant experience and helping to communicate it well that's a really good question because I think the word responsibility can be a little bit loaded and I think, yeah, yeah it's a heavy word. it can be a very heavy word. And I think that I've always felt a responsibility no matter what, but the nature and weight of that responsibility has certainly changed over the past couple of years. When I started sharing my parents' stories in 2017, 
that was very deliberate. It was intentional. I saw what was happening in our country. It broke my heart. It made me angry. It hurt me. And I felt like this is my way of trying to heal some of this for me personally, as well as for my 10,000 followers you know, on Instagram. That's what I was doing. I was like, some people need to know a little bit more about the immigrant experience in the United States because they clearly do not understand it. And I think that what happened in the past year and a half, and particularly more recently, as we've seen additional instances of hate against the AAPI community is understanding that I am not just speaking to people who don't know the immigrant experience. I'm also speaking to people who know it too well, who have it in their hearts and have not been able to share it with anyone because they're afraid, because they don't have the words, because nobody's listening to them. I'm also speaking to them too. This is a new revelation to me. I did not think about that when I started sharing these stories. And so over the past year and a half, I've been very mindful of making sure that whatever I share is a fair, reasonable and healing representation for the community of which I've been a part since I was, you know, since I was born. Yeah, it's, you know, we always talk about at Share Our Strength um, that, you know, in many ways we are a voice for the voiceless. Um, I'm talking about hungry kids, and it sounds like you know you you're you're doing the same thing. You're you're a voice for the voiceless uh, in your own community. I try to be, and what a, you know honor and also a really scary burden uh, to undertake, Um, you know, particularly in the fact that I'm vegan. I'm literally in some respects a voice for those who cannot speak because they're animals, right? And we don't understand them. But even, you know, beyond that, um, as you mentioned, it's for it's for the those who've had their voices taken from them, or voice you know their voices being suppressed, or just afraid to speak, or yeah, just afraid. Yeah, they've been hurt. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So um, storytellers are often story consumers as well um, because they love stories. I'm curious, what kind of stories do you like to? receive or to hear or to learn? Well, I've been reading since I was a little girl. So I'm a huge uh, book nerd. I I read a lot. And, um, you know, I, I don't really care what kind of story it is, as long as it's a compelling one. I mean, so, you know, my grandmother used to tell me stories to get to sleep every night that turned into, you know, uh, Anna Green Gables, Count of Monte Cristo, Treasure Island, you know, like all of the great classics. And then it was Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. I'm a big mystery buff. Um, and so there, there's just all sorts of stories. But I think, you know, for purposes of our current age of storytelling, as in, you know, the era of digital storytelling, you know, um, you know, of course, I'm a sucker for puppy videos and, you know, animal adoption stories and, and you know, but mostly I like the stories of empowerment, of um, recovery, rehabilitation. Um, those are the kinds of things that I gravitate towards, which is how does one take something that was designed to harm them 
and leverage what they learn from that experience to empower themselves to become better, to become happier, to become more purposeful. Joanne, we had we had a guest on. His name is Brandon Trostowski, and he founded an organization called Edwin's. It's a restaurant. He was uh, he was arrested and jailed for a short time, and was luckily uh, you know got out. Uh, the judge let, let him off the hook, but he, he kind of came out and said, you know, I've got to make something of my life basically. And he ended up working within prisons to help teach, you know, inmates all about cooking, culinary and hospitality. And now he's got restaurants where he, he employs them after that. And he was just, you know, really inspiring, but just kind of sounds exactly like what you were talking about a minute ago. Amazing. Amazing. His philosophy is that every human being, regardless of their past, has the right to a fair and equal future, which I just love, you know, that notion of, you know, resilience and, and second chances. What do you think's next? You uh, Cookbook on dinner parties, potential. I've already talked to your agent about that. We heard, we heard it here first, and my sister, of course, is available. I, I, I can do it with you if you'd like. I'm just kidding. I will keep you in mind, Debbie. <laughs> no, yeah, I was going to ask about what's next. And I was also going to ask about um, video because I read it was either in the Washington Post or somewhere else where you said one thing that did click for you at one point was just the notion that you know people want to consume their information by video right now, that video works. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that does. I mean, that is true to a point. I will say, um, just to answer the first question first. I mean, what's what's next is my cookbook. So I've I just signed a, a a deal for two more cookbooks. So I'll be working on that. Uh, another sort of project that I've been working on is writing a non cookbook book uh, about politics, and um, you know that's something that. I care very deeply about and have for a very, very long time. And what's the perspective on politics? That sounds fascinating. My, my background's political. Joanne uh, worked in the U.S. Senate for 20 years and involved in three unsuccessful presidential campaigns. So here's the thing. I think the first instinct I had was, I want to write a book that solves the problem of America. We need it. <laughs> like, Lots of interest there. Yeah, we need it. Okay. I'm not qualified to write that book. <laughs> I know. Yeah, a lot of demand for that, but I unfortunately do not have the supply for that. Um, so then the other thing that, you know, and I'm writing this, um, you know, I would be writing this with a co-author. Uh, he's actually the one who co-authored the um, op-ed in The Atlantic that we did in November of 2020. And so the uh, the so i decided we need to pivot we need to play to our strengths and i said what is my strength well you know i'm not a political guru i'm not in politics but i do know how to talk about political issues in a way that's very accessible and approachable to the everyday person. That's what I do. You know, I take sort of things that are very legal easy um, or complicated and I create 60 second videos like I did one on the federal rules. I've done one on the 25th Amendment, I, you know, and that's what I am good at. So I decided that what I think we need is communication. We need to learn how to talk about politics in a way that's effective and productive as opposed to divisive and tribally, which is essentially what's happened. So we've, it's, I don't know what it's going to be called, but right now I'm thinking, you know, I've been calling it, you know, simply political, which is this idea of let's make politics simple enough for the everyday person 
so that they can feel confident again about talking about it in an informed and productive way. You know, that's so interesting because one of the things that we're talking about right now and that I've observed, particularly having worked in the Senate for a long time in, in an era before 50 senators of one party always voted one way and the others always voted the other way is that uh, so little of our communication today is genuinely intended to persuade. You know, it's pretended, it, it, it's intended to kind of rally your base and to fire up your your side. But there's, you know, we were talking about, you know, should we invest more in going up to Capitol Hill and uh, doing advocacy work, lobbying senators on our issues? And uh, it's just a moment at which they're not open. Uh, you know, again, when I was worked on the Hill 30 years ago, people came up and senators, uh, you know, they were political, they were Democrats and Republicans, but to some degree, their minds were open to hearing what you had to say and then to making up their mind. And that's just not the case today. Uh, and, you know, that's translating down to other levels. So I think there's a, a, a really powerful need for the kind of book you're talking about. Well, I think that, you know, what you're and we can go off on this tangent forever. So but I don't and I don't want to take up your entire podcast about this. But I will say, like, you know, to me, because of that sort of kind of like brokenness in, in constituency advocacy or whatever you want to call it, representation, right? They're now just, you know, pandering to their voters, right? So then the power does rest with the voter. <laughs> That's who it rests with. And, and the problem is that voters are now getting all of their information. I mean, I was doing some of the research for the book. I mean, they're getting all their information from Facebook and from social media and, and YouTube bloggers. And it is terrifying that that is how they are informing the way they vote at, at the polls. And, 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 you know, politicians are absolutely aware of this and take advantage of it. And so if that's the case, then, okay, fine. I'm done with the politicians. I want to speak directly with the people who are putting them into office, keeping them in office. And so that is really what the book is designed to do. I kept telling my co-author who's, you know, also he's actually in DC and he's, you know, very successful practitioner and has had, you know, has been on all the, you know, television shows and pundits and all that stuff. And I keep telling him like, we need to write this book for people like my mom and my dad, not for the 1% of people who will otherwise read this. We need to really gear this towards people who are afraid to talk about politics at dinner because they don't know if what they're saying makes any sense. I'm going to, I'll wrap up with my other uh, piece of writing advice. Um, Elia Kazan's was the more personal, the more universal. Uh, and something you just said just reminded me of this, which is I'm, I'm reading a really old book right now. The Library of America put out a, a special volume of uh, two books about World War II by an author named Cornelius Ryan, who he wrote uh, The Longest Day and A Bridge Too Far. And in the introduction, uh, he's quoted as saying that his writing advice, and he was a journalist for a long time, that the most effective way to write and to reach people is to start every piece of writing with two words, dear mother. Oh, <laughs> I which love I, that. I, I just love. You know, and it's true. You, you, will, you will say it a different way. You won't be standing up on a soapbox, right, gesticulating. You, you'll be talking to a person. So, That's exactly right. dear mother. Yeah. Just fabulous. How long did you practice law? Seventeen years. Wow. Okay. And uh, you and was it you just recently decided to kind of focus full time on the culinary 
uh, and video world? Yeah. So I practiced for 17 years at the same firm. And I withdrew from partnership there in October, which was when my book was released. And now I am simply of counsel there so that I have all the time and resources I need to kind of go full time as a content creator. And people, Foley and Lardner is a big firm and people leave law firms for lots of different reasons. Sometimes they go into government for a while or do something else. Um, but this must have been different for them. How did they, what was the conversation at Foley and Lardner? <laughs> It was, it was funny, actually. I've gotten like so many different kinds of reactions to it. But I mean, overwhelmingly positive and incredibly supportive. And my original intention was simply to just leave, you know, like most people would have, you know, I'm just like, okay, I'm just gonna you know, say goodbye to Foley. But in talking about it with my practice group leader, who also is my work BFF, you know, he was like, you shouldn't leave. Um, you know, why don't you just stick around, you know, on an of counsel or special counsel capacity, simply because your new role uh, as the Korean vegan does open a lot of doors that could be beneficial to the firm as well, which is entirely true. I, you know, get into the GC offices of some of the largest fortune 200 companies in the country, um, just by virtue of doing a cooking demonstration for them now instead of CLEs, although I'm doing a CLE as well. But so, um, you know, the, the firm basically was like, well, we love you. We have seen you grow up, which they did as a baby attorney all the way to partner. We don't want to lose you. We consider you a part of our family. So if we can only keep you in this very small, limited capacity, sign us up, we'll do it. And so they've just been amazing. And you don't have to name names, but what percentage of senior partners at Foley or anywhere else have ever seen TikTok? <laughs> so maybe, like maybe more at Foley because of you, but as a rule. No. As a rule, I would say probably less than 10%. I was the topic of conversation apparently at the at a partnership meeting several months ago. And, and by that time, I had already left the partnership, so I wasn't there. And I was apparently, it came up and people were like, what is TikTok? <laughs> Nobody really understood what it was. And one of the partners was like, let's just say that I am now the cool mom to my 16-year-old daughter because I used to be partners with Joanne Molinaro. That would do it. So it's really, really funny. Yeah. Joanne, what, what, what kind of lot were you practicing? I was a trial lawyer, so I was a commercial litigator, and my practice consisted largely of antitrust class actions, complex chapter 11s, and fraud. What a, what a change. My goodness. Sometimes I was going to ask you about this related to being a lawyer. Some, sometimes lawyers are labeled as fast-talking lawyers. Uh, did you have to learn to talk fast for TikTok, or were you already fast-talking? <laughs> You know, that's actually a really good question. I think when people say lawyers are fast talkers, they're probably referring to something else. Yes, I, I think so too. <laughs> and not the literal fast talking. Um, in that sense, I, I think my content is the exact opposite in that, you know, I tend to be almost honest to a fault, uh, painfully so. Um, but in another sense, in terms of Understanding the importance of the elevator speech, which was something that, of course, we were trained to do since we were baby lawyers, um, that certainly did come in handy. I, I need to be succinct. I need to be very clear in my communication. I need to 
get to the point uh, and make sure that I'm providing value as as quickly as I can. I bet I bet you don't know what the kimchi squad is, do you? I do. I literally. Oh, she's asking oh, wait, me. No, oh, please, please, really please answer, Joanne. Get me off the hook okay. here. I know you do, and and I don't know. I don't know how often it's used, but the story that you tell about, um, you know, you really wanted to make it that kimchi authentically on the ground and. Was, I don't know if it was your mom or your grandmother, sorry, who wanted to make it on the table, but you ended up making it was your mom. And just that story I thought was really touching. Maybe you could share that with us and what the what the kimchi squad is, because I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, making kimchi for, you know, my community and doing that video was really important to me because it was a something that my community had asked me to do for like five years. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting up because I knew it was B in my first cookbook. Uh, And B, it was because, you know, making kimchi with the women in your family in Korean culture is is a bonding moment. It's it's special. It can be very special. And it's not something that I've done very often. I've maybe done it a handful of times. So with that in mind, you know, I had all these ideas in my head. Oh, you know, we're going to do it outside like we would normally do it. And, you know, we're going to do it on our patio and da, 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 da. And I had all these crazy ideas. And my mom, you know, as soon as I get in there with the camera person, she gets all nervous because, you know, he's not Korean and very self-conscious, you know, and, and, um, you know, she's like, okay, we're going to do it on this table. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never, like, we've never done it on a table. Like, I don't even know what that would look like, you know? And she's like, no, it's going to be on the video. And I was like, no, I'm a, we're going to do it the way we would normally do it, which is on the kitchen floor. If you don't want to go outside, fine, we'll do it on the kitchen floor. And so she did it. And then, you know, as I'm sure you saw in my post, um, I posted a photo that I thought was so great of me, my mom, and my aunt making kimchi on our kitchen floor. And some, yeah, smart alecky Twitter person, person was like, yeah. yeah, I was like, ooh, on the floor, I'll take a pass. Right. And I was right. just like, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. I was like, my mom's fears were realized, right, you know, right. in some small way. So, yeah. but she probably got a lot of positive ones too, I hope. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that, that, that that TikTok about my mom and and that tweet is my most viral TikTok. So. Oh, is that, yeah. Oh, I just loved it. Yeah, it was really really sweet. Mm-hmm. Well, I would just like to say before we finish that obviously I know what the kimchi squat is. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we've been, we, we've been talking with Joanne Lee Molinaro, the Korean vegan. This has been such a fun conversation. Most people can find her a minute at a time on TikTok, but we got Joanne for thirty nine minutes. I'm honored. Awesome. I'm honored too. Really been great talking to you. Congratulations on your incredible success. Really fun, Joanne. Thanks for a message that is just so important uh, on such a human level for so many people that follow you, Joanne. It's really, really a, a treat to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. If you want to learn more about the Korean vegan, Joanne Lee Molinaro, and hear other compelling episodes about how food and family shape our identity, please visit adpassionandstir.com. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, share it with a friend, or rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woodle's team at District Productive and Joanna Weber of Pop and Awe, with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in